recruiting has been a big struggle for the military services for the last few years. And in 2023, the Air Force will become the latest service to miss its recruiting goals. It's the first time that's happened since 1999. But officials say there are signs the tide is turning back towards more favorable results in 2024. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has more on what the Air Force has been doing to boost those numbers. For the fiscal year that ends this month, the active-duty Air Force will be about 10% below the recruiting targets it set for the year, and it hoped to add 26,500 new airmen to the force this year. Figures for the Air National Guard and Air Force Reserve are even bleaker. Those components will miss their recruiting targets by about 30%. Then there's another concern. The population of recruits who've agreed to join but haven't yet been formally assessed into the military service, the so-called delayed entry pool, is at uncomfortably low levels. Brigadier General Chris Amrine is the commander of the Air Force Recruiting Service. Typically at the start of a fiscal year, we'd have about 25 percent in the bank waiting to ship. But in this challenging recruiting environment, we are looking between 16 and 18 percent as we go into FY24. This is a much better situation than this time last year, and that's what keeps me cautiously optimistic. But Amrine says things likely would have been even worse by the end of this year if the Air Force hadn't already started implementing measures to increase the number of people who are eligible for military service. Those changes started about a year ago when, for example, the service reversed a prior policy that permanently disqualified new recruits if they tested positive for marijuana use. We realized, with about three dozen states having legalized marijuana laws, that this was not a policy that made sense. Now, well-qualified applicants are given a second option to retest. Let's make no mistake, drug usage has absolutely no place in our air and space forces, but allowing a second test in the recruiting process is the right thing to do. And in the past six to eight months, the Air Force changed several other policies, including a more permissive standard for tattoos and standards for body fat percentage that match the other military services. Officials say those changes alone allowed about 1,000 extra people to enlist that would have been barred under the previous policies. Next on the list of things the Air Force hopes to change, give its recruiters more time in the field by reducing the amount of time they spend on administrative work. One of the biggest contributors to that workload has been the introduction of MHS Genesis, the Defense Department's new modern electronic health record. Because of its interconnections with private electronic health exchanges, recruiters can now see much more information about recruits' prior medical history. But combing through all of that additional data takes time. Officials estimate the time it takes for the medical portion of the screening process has tripled since Genesis was first introduced. You know, I use this as the vignette. You're going through a medical history and go, have you ever been, you know, diagnosed with asthma? No, I don't remember ever being diagnosed with asthma. But your record shows that you got issued an inhaler at some point, but maybe no diagnosis of asthma. Well, we've got to run that to ground to make sure that we have accurately assessed you. It doesn't mean we're not going to take you in, but we have to accurately assess. And so the more precise that medical history is, which is really what Genesis is about, is making the most accurate medical history. Now, you know, through that capability, you go, hey, I I now can see this. Maybe we need to, you know, we have to run that through its process. So the need for Genesis is absolutely, I think it's, it's, it's there, but that process to run through those things has lengthened. And, and that's the piece we have to get after. But it's also not clear that running down questions about childhood asthma is the best use of recruiters' time. 
So the Air Force is issuing contracts both to have medical professionals take over the evaluation of those medical histories and to build a new system to automate some of the administrivia involved in the recruiting process. That's all part of this new IT backbone. It's called, uh, you know, AFRIS 2.0. It's our IT system. Um, that will actually absolutely accelerate it. When we talk about how fast and, and what is interconnected, that piece of it is, is absolutely essential to make sure that we can flight follow a little bit more accurately um, rather than waiting. You know, it'll, it kind of will be out there that goes, hey, instead of just going, hey, we're waiting a response from MEPS, we'll be able to track that through the system and then maybe have a more proactive, be able to, you know, push rather than wait for, for response to get back in that processing piece. So the IT, the automation is essential in that. The medical contract uh, option is going to be very helpful in that manner as well. Then there's the issue of the size of the recruiting workforce. Amrine says the Air Force is relatively small compared to the other services, about one-seventh the size of the Army's recruiting workforce, for example. To take another example, the service only has four recruiters in the entire state of Montana. So to help cover the ground in-person recruiters can't, the Air Force is experimenting with the idea of e-recruiters, who can handle most of the process virtually instead of face-to-face. That started out as a pilot program made up of five retired recruiters a year ago, and it's since grown to 21 positions. And my challenge to the team is how large can we grow that? That is a nationwide, they take nationwide leads and then actually work those all the way to the point where we would send them to MEPS or get them uh, to, to almost to that ship point. And then we have a physical interface with the recruiter in the, in the local area. The e-recruiter gets theirs from what's called our lead generation uh, office that takes leads from all over the United States and refines them. Because somebody may say, I'm really interested in joining the, uh, the Air Force or the Space Force, but they may be 16 years old and they don't know we... we we need you to come, but it needs to be in a couple of years. Or maybe as you're getting close to 17 and we can put you into the depth of the bank. And so those two initiatives alone have really gotten after uh, areas or spaces that we have not been able to be in before. And I want to grow that and expand it. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, retired Army Major General Tammy Smith felt for the first time that she could lead her team authentically. Smith, a longtime leader and one of the military's highest-ranking openly gay officers, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share her perspective on collaborative and genuine leadership. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by retired U.S. Army Major General Tammy Smith. Major General Smith, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Shane, it's great to talk to you this morning. Your career in the military spans more than 30 years. Was there ever a moment or point in your career that changed your trajectory, and what was that? I have a very unique one that occurred that did change my tra- trajectory in many ways, and that is at my about 25th year of service, um, the law known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell that prohibited people who identified as gay from serving in the military, that was repealed, and now you could be open in the military. And soon after that happened, I married Tracy, my wife, 
and I was also notified I'd been selected for promotion to Brigadier General. And at that time, there had been no general or admiral who had come out or identified their family in any way that you would, you would know that they were gay. And so just by timing, I ended up being the first openly gay general in the U.S. military. And what changed for me in that is I still had all the things that I had to do, of course, as a general, which was a lot of hard work that went into that. But for the first time in my life, I was able to lead authentically. 25 years, I had compartmentalized a part of me, and I had hidden things, and I had not been my full self at work, and I had not been my full self with my coworkers. And the repeal of that law and the opportunity then to be the sort of LGBTQ champion in the Department of Defense as a senior leader, what that did is it got me closer to my authentic leadership style and my authentic self because I was more comfortable in my own skin and I wasn't looking over my shoulder at all times thinking that I might have said something that would reveal what my true life was and then lead to my dismissal from the military. Having that weight off of my shoulders not having to hide who I was at work made me such a better leader than I had been in the 25 years that I had served previously. It's fascinating to hear your story about that because I was alive during all that and followed it as well. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. And your career included a lot of firsts. You were the first female general officer, as you said, um, to serve in the 8th Army headquarters level position. Uh, you already talked about being um, the first LGBTQ general and flag officer. H- how does being first, how did that influence your leadership style? I was first in a lot of places through no fault of my own uh, by virtue of having joined the military in the 80s when there weren't a lot of women who were choosing that as a career path. So there were many things, even as a young person, where I would show up and I would be the only woman who was in that particular unit or doing that particular type of training. And what you get as a first is you, you assume this mantle of being a role model for, I don't know if it's your, your group or yourself. And in these roles of first, I would have to say that complete competence was always expected because you were elevated a bit and people noticed you more because they knew you as the first. And so you, you just gained extra attention in that. But with that, that attention brought a great deal of responsibility. And you've said in the past that your interest in leadership dates all the way back to high school when you first joined Future Farmers of America. And how did that early education, that organization, change your path later in life? Future Farmers of America, while it's certainly to teach people about agriculture, but it's also it teaches people to be leaders so that in the agricultural world, people entering into that as an industry have the skills uh, to be leaders in that world. And I loved learning about speaking. I loved learning about being on a team. There were many things that I learned about leadership early in high school through FFA that 
suited me well, there are skills that I used all the way up through two-star general. And one of the one that jumps out the most at me is communication. I mean, we already talked about how it's important to be competent, but sometimes your competence comes from the presence that you project, and a lot of that presence comes from how you are able to communicate. So in times when I had uncertainty, I could convey confidence through my communication skills in a way that would get me through some ambiguity and things would turn out all right. But those skills go back. Those are base skills that I learned way back in high school and through my association with FFA. It's really great and refreshing to hear you meld those two concepts of confidence and competence because really both are required for um, expansion as a professional but also into leadership roles. I think so because if you're if you're the leader in the role, people want to trust, and so your competence certainly informs a bit of that trust. But your ability to communicate that and to speak to your team in a language that your team understands and to be able to adjust for that, I think that that informs that trust a great deal, which is what produces the results: is the trust within the team. Excellent, excellent. Uh, what's one piece of advice that you would go back? And tell yourself if you were starting uh, again in your career. When I started my career, of course, well, I certainly had some skills. I, w- I wasn't a rounded, informed, wise leader of any sort. And I think that people have a leadership style that suits their personality uh, until they learn more skills. And for me, I was a collaborative leader. And I always have been a collaborative leader, but right from the beginning about what I would tell myself to do differently. Sometimes when you are a young leader with a team with direct responsibility and direct reports, sometimes collaborative leadership feels to the team like you can't make a decision. Sometimes at that level of leadership, what the team needs is for you to just tell them what you want done by what time. And so I'm going to say that I wasn't as effective as a younger leader in those situations where I was in these direct leadership roles because my tendency towards collaboration um, frustrated the team a bit. But when we jump ahead 25, 30 years, collaboration in the willingness to take a little bit more time with decisions that impact things on a longer timeline, those are exactly the skills that you need. So I would tell my younger self, be a little bit more direct, have a bit more awareness of where you are in the structure of the organization and the timelines that you're working in, and don't be afraid to be a little bit more direct um, as a young leader, even if your natural style is a bit more collaborative. That is excellent. And as somebody who's looked at and studied leadership over the years, there are many different leadership styles, everything, uh, many different formally studied leadership styles and collaboration, situational. I, I, I love how you put it in context. It's not that one is good or bad, but depending upon your role and where you are in your career and those who uh, work for and with you, yeah. you can change to you, meet the needs. You definitely can. And the whole timeline is important when you are choosing your leadership style to get the results that you want because it's all, of course, results driven. 
And in some cases, and this was true in military leadership and true in, in many places, is sometimes the urgency of the decision doesn't allow for the collaboration because a missile is coming in <laughs> or, you know, something something is timed in, in a financial type of way and you have to hit a particular timing point. And so you, you've got to make these decisions quickly. But sometimes making quick decisions, I, I talk often that it's easy to make a decision. It's harder to make a good decision. And you have to take into consideration the timeline that your decision is going to impact. And that will influence the style of leadership that you choose to come to that decision point, if you can kind of follow my logic there. I think it's fascinating. And, and maybe what you're also saying is that part of leadership, um, a, a never-to-be-forgotten dynamic, is, is judgment. You know, there's a judgment component to all of this that you just mentioned. You're, you're um, making decisions using judgment as far as what's the best leadership role for this moment, for this decision. Yeah, I think there is a lot of judgment in that, and it goes back to that quest for competence because as your skills improve, your judgment will improve because you you've peeked around the corner a little bit, you've been exposed to more things, and you are able to exercise judgment in a way that would have been impossible when I first started. Um, I think that that experience certainly informs judgment, which is why sometimes it, when you're looking at somebody at the executive level, it looks so easy for them. You know, They see the big pieces earlier. That's because for probably 30 or 40 years, they've been looking at all the little pieces and in some of this, then their judgment becomes almost intuitive to them because of the experience that they had gathered over that time frame. Perfect. What, is there a figure, either from your personal life or maybe in history, that has been an inspiration, that has inspired your leadership style? It's somebody who no one has probably heard of, and that's my brigade commander, Colonel Pullen, who... I was exposed to early in my career as an officer. He was a Vietnam veteran, and in his role as brigade commander, what he wanted to teach all of us was attention to detail for consequential decision-making. And so he would ask very specific questions, such as when you get to the rifle range and you offload the buses, which side of the bus are the soldiers going to come off of? Because then that was whether or not you might need a road guard to cross the road over to the range and that sort of thing. But what he would tell us is that leaders will make life and death decisions based on the information that you provide them. So make sure that your information is correct when you provide it to them. And that stuck with me throughout my career is that when I was either informing a decision maker or if I was the decision maker, the question from Colonel Pullen always came up is like, is that what you think or is that what you know? Tell me how you know it. Meaning, did you see it? Did you touch it? Did you read the same report? And, and just to understand that, especially in the military, that line of work, that the decisions that are often made are, are literally life and death types of decisions. Excellent. Excellent advice. Um, General Tammy Smith, it's been an honor and a privilege to meet you and talk with you and 
and listen to you share uh, your leadership journey with us. Thank you very much for your time. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we will talk to you next time on Lessons in Leadership podcast. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.